Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is a view from the bunker. Now, here's Derek Gilbert. The science of Sodom. That's straight ahead on a view from the bunker. Prepare for spiritual war by arming yourself with information. Take advantage of these specials through March that dig deep into the Bible to help you make sense of the chaos around us. First, our Veneration Bundle, our two co-authored books, plus the travelogue DVDs from our Israel tours. An $85 value, just $45 plus shipping and handling. The Second Coming of Saturn Bundle, featuring my book and the 13-part companion DVD, a $50 value for just $35 plus shipping and handling. The This Is War special offer, featuring the Second Coming of Saturn, four DVDs and seven hours of audio interviews with Bible scholar Dr. Michael Heiser, a $145 value for just $75 plus shipping and handling, and the Gilbert Fiction Collection, all eight novels in Sharon's Red Wing Saga series plus my two novels, a $200 value for just $140 plus shipping and handling. These offers are available through March only at our online store, gilberthouse.org store. And again, we thank you for your prayers and support. The storm that destroyed the city of Sodom is only slightly more powerful and destructive than the storm that's followed the recent scientific papers about the discovery of a Middle Bronze Age site destroyed right where the Bible says Sodom was. Welcome to A View from the Bunker. I'm Derek Gilbert. There are those who believe that the claims are driven by Bible thumpers who just want to prove the Bible is true and not just a collection of myths and fairy tales. And then there are Christians who say, well, no, this is in the wrong time period or it's in the wrong place or et cetera and and so on. Well, you have to let the science speak for itself. Set aside preconceptions, just as we've done with the timeline of Egyptian history, which even the experts admit is wrong. Set aside preconceptions based on other discoveries of archaeologists whose work we may respect, who We may respect as men, but the science is pretty clear. A city that was important enough to draw kings all the way from modern-day Iran to go to war against it has been discovered. Right where the Bible says Lot would have been able to look up, meaning to the east, when he was at the city of Bethel, north of Jerusalem, and uh, take his flocks for pasturage. And it is there, directly across the river from Jericho, which, by the way, was also destroyed in this same cataclysm from the sky. Joining us uh, in an interview that we uh, recorded last summer, actually, and uh, we've seen him give presentations now a couple of times, spoken to him previously, and really appreciate his his work and his out-of-the-box thinking. The uh, author of a paper that was published in... uh, An imprint of Nature, which is a peer-reviewed secular magazine about these findings. The Director of Scientific Analysis for the Dig at Tal El-Hammam, Dr. Philip Sylvia. My pleasure to be with you. Tal El-Hammam, why is uh, this an exciting archaeological site, and what is it that you and your team have found there? 
Well, it's an exciting archaeological site because, uh, first of all, the, the time frame that we're interested in is the Middle Bronze Age period, uh, which is the time of Abraham uh, in the biblical narrative. And this site, Tal al-Hammam, is the largest single urban center in the southern Levant during that period of time. So it, it's, a, it's a very large city. And it represents a, a major political force in the region. So we will consider it to be the anchor city of a city-state complex. So just, just its sheer size alone demands attention. And, and that's what's exciting to us. So this, um, this is a city that might have been important enough for an army to march all the way across Mesopotamia to do battle against its king? Um. Yes, certainly. Uh, it, it controlled the major east-west-north-south trade route on the east side of the Jordan River, you know, north of the Dead Sea. So it, it was a very influential city at the time. Um, and whether or not that you know, presented either a, a political threat or, or an inducement because of its wealth uh, for invasion is it possible. But what's curious is there is no, at least we have not found, any physical evidence of military conquest there. What we have is a large urban center that was continuously occupied from at least the beginning of the Chalcolithic period, which would put it initially occupied around 4600, 4500 BC, continuously occupied without invasion, without any evidence of military conquest, until it was somehow destroyed rather violently, rather quickly, and uh, in about 1700 B.C., around the time of Abraham. Now, cities have been destroyed in warfare over the centuries, but just to reiterate, you have not found any evidence of a military conquest there. Correct. The damage that we see over the course of time at our site is damage that was induced by earthquake activity. You know, the, the Dead Sea obviously sits in the deepest crack in the Earth's surface. It's a tectonically active region. It is prone to earthquakes and, and major earthquakes periodically. And we see evidence of earthquake damage in, in the structures, in the architecture. Um, but yet uh, the city kept on ticking. There, there is none of the classical... Uh, what we call a BDA sequence, a period of building followed by a period of destruction, usually by military conquest, followed by a period of abandonment. So we have that building, uh, destruction, abandonment, that BDA sequence that typically can be seen in a normal uh, tell, or at least on the Arabic side, we call them talls instead of tells. Uh, we do not have that sequence. We have just uh, evidence of continuous occupation uh, over a very long period of time, you know, multiple thousand years. Um, we don't have that destruction and abandonment sequencing. We just have a moving window of time uh, in, in our, at, at our site, which makes it very unique. Hmm. Now, the destruction layer at uh, Tall El Hammam, how is the destruction there different from what you'd expect from a, a major earthquake event? Well, first of all, in a major earthquake event, 
usually what you have the ground move, moves in a linear motion. Like we are on a north-south strike-slip fault. And so you have the, the slips move, the, the two different plates are moving like this against each other. And every time they, they lock, and then when they shift quickly, that's what creates an earthquake. And that sends ripples through the ground that basically work in a linear fashion so that they, they typically move north and south because that's where, that's how the plates are moving under the Great Rift Valley. So when you see an earthquake destruction, you have you have debris that falls like on both sides of a, of a foundation wall. But in our case, in that destruction layer from about 1700 BC, what we see is everything fell or was blown in a single direction, blown from the southwest towards the northeast. That is very uncharacteristic of earthquake activity, and it is very unique to our situation. So something exploded, and the force of the explosion pushed everything in one direction. Well, that was one of the initial clues that caused us to investigate uh, more seriously uh, and in, in greater depth. What was the destruction mechanism? That's the question that we've been trying to answer. What was the destruction mechanism? And you're right. It does appear that there was a very violent explosion of some sort to the southwest of our site. And so that the force traveled from the southwest to the northeast. All of the destruction debris was pushed in a northeasterly direction. And that was one of the initial clues that uh, uh, led us to believe that, okay, something happened here that would have blown all of this material in a single direction. And that is the quest that, that well, personally, I have been on since my involvement in 2010, uh, and then my first time to the site in 2012, was to try and understand what was that mechanism that what? caused this particular and very unique destruction pattern. What, what kind of force are we talking about here? Is this something that, uh, I mean, I know that gunpowder is not supposed to have been invented uh, until much later and in China, but is this something that uh, could have happened through uh, somebody accidentally setting off uh, a, a petroleum product or something? <laughs> Well, of course, that has been one of the great theories uh, uh, that has been around for many, many years, that, that uh, well, perhaps the, the ground uh, burped a, a large cloud of methane gas, and somehow that got ignited maybe by lightning uh, and caused a massive explosion. Uh, well, no, that just doesn't work. When you if you have it in a confined space, then you can build up enough pressures to knock things over. But when you're in, you know, in an open area, uh, you'll you'll get a fireball, but you won't get as much of a concussive force um, from you know just an effusion of methane gas coming out of a fissure in the ground. Um, just doesn't work that way. The the level of the force. Well, let me let, let me just tell you how what the effect was. When that blast went off, picture now the buildings are field stone foundations with mud brick superstructures on top of it. So the walls are made out of unreinforced air-dried mud brick. Houses, the, the walls may be typically up to about a half a meter thick or, or less. 
the monumental structures, you know, the palace, the temple, 2.6 meters and sometimes greater in thickness. So you're talking multi-story mud brick buildings. Um, All of the residential structures that were particularly on the lower portion of Tala Hammam were completely blown off of their foundations and destroyed. The very thick and large, tall rampart walls, the defensive walls that, that, that provided the protection for the city around the lower tail, but especially on the upper tail, um, these are you know, many meters thick at the base. And what we see based on what is left for us to actually excavate on the upper portion of the tail, which we call the Acropolis, it's where the king's palace was located, uh, everything that projected above these massive rampart walls just got sheared off. And we're talking about very, very thick walls. So you had enough explosive force to level these very heavy mud brick buildings on the lower tail, which were mostly residential, and then to shear off whatever was exposed above the very thick uh, protective defensive walls uh, on the upper. And we're talking multiple stories being sheared off because we're looking at buildings that were three and four stories uh, high. And that's why the the mud brick walls were so thick on the lower stories, because they had to support all of that weight above them. So massive amounts of concussive energy, of blast force, was unleashed, not only on this site, but across the entire valley floor north of the Dead Sea. Just so viewers have a a sense of context here, uh, you you mentioned 2.6 meters. That's roughly 8 to 9 feet, if my math in my head is is correct. So you're talking something, even though mud brick's not the most durable or uh, uh, strongest building material out there still when you've got a wall that's uh, in the eight to nine feet thick that's 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 substantial and these were just in in a moment's time just knocked basically clean off just like somebody had taken a some sort of cosmic bulldozer and just sheared them off above the layer of the defensive the defensive walls of the city Certainly the residential structures, which were more on the order of a half a meter thick. Okay. Uh, in terms of their, their mud brick walls. Which is yes, still like a foot and a half thick. Off of the foundation, yes. So roughly, a, you, 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 when you consider the architecture, about a half a meter thickness for a wall is a single story building. If you go to a one meter thick wall, now you're talking about at least a two story building. So uh, rule of thumb is about a half a meter per story. So if you've got a, a multiple story building, and in our case, we're 2.6 meters thick in some cases, you're talking about a four story or possibly five story building. And the upper stories, yes, were sheared off on those larger buildings. The portions of them that, that projected above the large defensive rampart wall going around the, uh, the upper tell. The, uh, you know, that encompassed the upper city, as we call it, got sheared off. But now you're only talking about, you know, the, the top one, two, or maybe three stories, but not, not the lower stories where it's really thick. So where the walls were really thick, we do find some mud brick remnants of the wall sitting on top of the stone foundations. But on the lower tell, which was almost entirely uh, residential, you know, private, private homes, um, what we find is the stone foundations in the ground. There is no superstructure to excavate. 
you, you mentioned a city that was the largest in the southern Levant, an anchor city for the civilization there, in control of the trade routes east-west and north-south, which uh, presumably would give it control over trade from Egypt to Mesopotamia and back. In the time of Abraham, destroyed by a sudden violent event, what conclusion do we draw about the identification of this city? Well, when you look at the geographical clues that are available to us in Scripture, particularly Genesis chapter 13, we are convinced that Tal al-Hammam is the most likely candidate for biblical Sodom. And what we see in the immediate region around Tal al-Hammam is there are a number of what we refer to as satellite cities. Um, they're pretty much equidistant spaced. Uh, within view of Tal al-Hammam. Um, and we have identified out of all of these multiple, uh, much smaller tells, the other three that we believe are likely candidates for Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim. So when you look at Genesis chapter 10, which first mentions Sodom and the other cities of the plain by name, uh, that's an early Bronze Age, so that would take you back to about 3500 B.C. Those are early Bronze Age cities. They're, they're established cities to the point where they're named as, as border cities of the region of Canaan, uh, and that's in Genesis chapter 10. When you get to Genesis chapter 13, you have that whole narrative between Lot and Abraham. Uh, they came down from Mesopotamia, uh, they encountered famine in the land, so they stopped at Bethel and I, built an altar to the Lord, and then uh, because of famine in the land, they kept heading south, and they went down into Egypt for some unspecified period of time. In chapter 13, they return from Egypt back to Bethel and I, and at this point, when they come back from Egypt, they are very wealthy now in terms of the cattle and the livestock that they had with them. And you can see in that narrative that that tension builds between the shepherds of Abraham and the shepherds of Lot. And so we have that famous dialogue between the two where Abraham says to Lot, if you go left, in other words, if you go north, I'll go south. If you go south, I'll go north. And, and we're told that from Bethel and I, Lot looked up and, you know, Hebrew doesn't have words for the cardinal directions, north, east, south, west. So they always, they always give you directions based on an assumption that you're facing east. So if you go left, you're going north. If you go right, you're going south. And it says, Lot looked up. In other words, he looked east, as it's translated in, in most of our English translations. He looked to the east, and from Bethel and I, we have a wonderful description of what the region looks like around Sodom. And that whole narrative concludes with Lot traveling east and settling around Sodom. Tafal Hamam is directly visible from Bethel and I. It is directly east from Bethel and I. So in terms of the geographical clues, which by the way are far more than the number of clues available even to locate Jerusalem based on the biblical texts. Uh, we have over 20 clues for the location of Sodom. We have about a dozen clues for the location of Jerusalem. And so just on the geographical clues alone, 
it's the right place. It's at the right time. We have an established early Bronze Age walled city to fit Genesis chapter 10. We have a very large established Middle Bronze Age city. Better than that, a walled city. Because in Genesis 19, where did the two angels find Lot? Seated at the city gates. The only cities that had city gates are fortified cities. We have a very large fortified city in the time of Abraham. So it's the right place geographically. It's the right time in terms of the archaeological evidence. And it has a lot of the right stuff. And, and basically what I'm quoting is our dig director, Dr. Stephen Collins. For 20 years, he's been talking about Tal al-Haman being the right place at the right time with the right stuff. My research has been focusing very specifically on the destruction event. And from what we have been finding, based on the physical evidence that we're finding, Tal al-Hamam also tells the right story. Everything that we're finding about its destruction is consistent with the biblical text of the destruction event of Sodom. But I should also add, whether or not it's Sodom, is irrelevant to the scientific evidence and the scientific inquiry that we've been making about the, the destruction event and its processes. But if it is Sodom, that sure adds a lot to the story. <laughs> if it wasn't a freak accident, like lightning igniting methane from the Dead Sea, what in fact, what in fact was it? Well. What, what piqued our curiosity at the very beginning, uh, and I should say that the, the excavation started in 2005. I joined the team on, on the site in 2012, which was season seven of the excavation project. Uh, we've now completed 15 seasons. Um, what we started to find was uh, evidence of directionality to the, the destruction event in that all of the debris seemed to be pushed in a single direction, which didn't fit any of the, of the typical destruction profiles. And I'd mentioned this you know, in the previous interview uh, when we talked about uh, earthquakes falling in two directions. Everything here moved in one direction. Doesn't fit the normal conquest pattern. So that was curious. And then we started finding odd pieces of material. And by odd, I mean... Uh, lots of broken pottery, but we started to find occasional pieces that were partially melted to the point of turning the clay of the pottery into glass. Hmm. Not entirely, but on the surface. We refer to that as vitrified or turned to glass pottery. We took one sample of that and sent it down to New Mexico Tech in, in Socorro, uh, to have it analyzed down there by some material scientists down there. And what we noted was that particular piece of broken piece of pottery, imagine it's, it's only a quarter of an inch thick, five millimeters thick. And if think of my fingers as, as each one representing one millimeter. The top one millimeter of this quarter inch thick piece was melted entirely to glass. The next two millimeters were thermally darkened and then the bottom two millimeters of this slice of broken pottery was unaltered. So it was a natural color. And we're trying to, what kind of process could that fragment have been exposed to that would get it hot enough to melt the surface to glass, 
but not melt the whole thing down. And, and bear in mind that this was found in a what we call a sealed Middle Bronze Age context, which would date it to about 1700 B.C. At first, we thought it was glazed pottery, but we know in that region of the world, glazing of pottery didn't occur till about 600 A.D. Hmm. We're at 1700 B.C. So what was the process that occurred that melted just the surface of that piece of pottery? And that's when we began to realize we are dealing with some very high, very short-duration temperatures associated with this destruction event. And the more we kept looking, the more we, we came to the conclusion that not only were we talking about extremely high and brief temperature, but also very strong concussive force. In other words, there was some kind of a blast that occurred that was able to knock buildings completely off of their foundation, pulverize mud bricks, literally blow that material into the next county somewhere because it was nowhere to be found except for very limited sections of, of debris. Um, and that got us thinking, it got me thinking for part of my doctoral dissertation that this has the appearance of, of a meteoritic impact or airburst event because that is the only naturally occurring phenomenon that could produce the kinds of effects that we were beginning to see and uncover at the site. I mean, sure, a nuclear bomb could have gone off, but obviously 1700 <laughs> BC, that doesn't make any sense, and nothing's radioactive. So we rule that out. So the only natural occurring force was a, uh, a meteoritic impact or airburst event, and that was the beginning then of the hypothesis that we began chasing to see if we could find sufficient evidence to to uh, be able to say with some degree of certainty that, yes, this is what did it. Over the subsequent time, you know, since that initial look for me in 2012, um, in 2014, uh, a group referred to as the Comet Research Group uh, joined me in this quest. Uh, they have been, they, they have been studying airburst and impact phenomenon around the world. For about 15 years, um, they've developed a lot of the scientific protocols to investigate the materials, identify what kind of materials should you be looking for. And they joined the party, as I said, in, in 2014 and have worked with me and supported me in, in this effort all of this time. Uh, and the more we looked, the more material evidence we found pointing to an airburst or impact event. Now, we pretty much ruled out an impact event because there is no crater mm. nearby. By the directionality, we knew that the, the, the force of the blast uh, approached from a southwest direction because everything was pushed northeasterly, um, which from the location of Tal al-Hammam, if you stand at the top of the upper tell and you look to the southwest, what you're looking at is the north end of the Dead Sea is visible from our site. And so part of that hypothesis was, well, it appears as though the blast occurred somewhere over the north end of the Dead Sea. That was what we would call the epicenter. Um, 
The other thing that we discovered very early on is that when we were excavating, particularly on the lower city, the lower portion, which is kind of round and flat compared to the upper portion of the city, which is very long and narrow, uh, when, we, when we would scrape the surface of the soil during the day with our excavation, and we'd go home at night, we'd come back, the next morning there would be a white haze on the surface of the ground. Uh, and that we found very curious. We discovered that that was actually salt leaching out of the soil because of the, the lower temperatures at night, the slightly higher humidity would leach salt to the surface. And so in 2014, I took some soil samples. We had, we had done a, a deep cut into uh, uh, the site that we were excavating on the lower tell. And, and the vertical wall, we call that the balk, the vertical wall of this sounding, this hole that we dug to, to take a quick look at the stratigraphy, uh, was, that was dug in 2011. Three years later in 2014, I jumped down into that sounding and noticed that there was a quarter-inch thick layer of salt that mm. had leached out of that wall and had formed a crust, a quarter-inch thick, on that wall. We chipped that off, and there's the, the Middle Bronze Age destruction layer. We could see it. And I took soil samples above and below it. We sent those samples out to a lab for geochemical testing and discovered that the salts that were contained in that soil were identical chemically to the water of the Dead Sea. Eight and a half miles away. Eight and a half miles away. Exactly right. But we also noticed that when we looked at the concentration of those salts in those samples that I took above, through, and below the destruction layer, they peaked in the destruction layer at over 6% by weight. So you had a 6% salt content in the destruction layer, and then it very rapidly tapered off above and below it. So it was the destruction layer that got saturated. That added to the thought that the north end of the Dead Sea was the epicenter for whatever this explosion was that created this high temperature profile, that created this concussive force that blew everything off of its foundations. So all of that added to say, okay, we think we know where the blast occurred. In the air, over the north end of the Dead Sea, enough to, to push that temperature profile, push that concussive force across, and, and also to push with it a sufficient volume of water from the north end of the Dead Sea to, to basically poison the, um, the soil in the, the fertile plains around it as well as the lower tell itself. So as we kept digging, we found more and more evidence that all pointed to uh, an airburst event. And by some of the evidence we're talking about, you know, high concentrations of rare earth elements that only appear as a result of uh, uh, asteroid-type airburst events, um, thermal profiles that only occur as a result of airburst or impact events. All of that material, all of that evidence started pointing in a direction to the point where we came to the conclusion, as we published in the paper that you just mentioned, that um, um, we we had on our hands here an airburst event that had uh, basically wiped out the city. And that's the paper that we just published. And not only that, we believe it was a Tunguska 
class event. And by that I mean I'm, I'm making reference to the, the airburst event that occurred over Tunguska, Siberia in 1908 that, that decimated 2,200 square kilometers of, of uh, tundra forest in northern Siberia. Uh, we had an event of that class, perhaps even greater, that occurred over that circular plain at the north end of the Dead Sea that wiped out Talal-Hamam and every other urban center in the region, all simultaneously, all at about 1700 B.C. You wrote a paper that kind of surprised me. I would think that with everything that you and uh, Dr. Stephen Collins and the team at Tal el-Hammam had been finding there, that this would have been uh, the last thing you expected to see. But you wrote a paper on how changing the orientation, the geographical orientation uh, of what appears to be the temple at ancient Sodom points to a uh, phenomenon that we here in the modern world just sort of take for granted, which is the rotation of the earth and the axis on which the earth rotates. Explain what it is you found and why you found it interesting. Well, this was actually the very first thing I noticed, my very first trip to the site in 2012. Uh, let, let me just back it up a, a little bit. Uh, in in my studies on, on archaeology as I was working towards my, my PhD in archaeology. One of the things that really intrigued me was a description of a site in Egypt, which is one of the lesser known uh, large areas of very small uh, pyramids. And these were pyramids that were, were built for, you know, lesser officials. Uh, so they're not, they're not big like the giant pyramids of Giza. But, uh, yeah, when an important person died, they, they buried him in a pyramid. They built a pyramid and buried him inside the pyramid. Well, these were, these had great religious significance. In, in, and so, as a result, the buildings were oriented in such a way so that the single doorway, which was always on the east side of the pyramid, always pointed to the place on the horizon where on the... Uh, and I have to stop and think whether it was the, the winter solstice or the, the spring equinox. I think it was actually the spring equinox. That was the point on the horizon where the sun would rise. And the door always pointed exactly to that point on the horizon. And one of the things that was pointed out about this area in which there were numerous small pyramids is that over the course of time as they were built, they pointed to slightly different places on the horizon. Hmm. And the, the, the positions indicated a rotation of about plus or minus six degrees wow. on the horizon. And what, that, what was proposed as a result of that is over the course of time that there would be subtle shifts in either the rotational axis of the earth or or what they call crustal skin you know the, the fact that that our earth is is a, a liquid or more or less plastic core with a hard crust surface and that crust can skid on the mantle and and dislocate slightly by various forces acting upon the earth or or major earthquakes even or impact events from large uh large meteors striking the earth 
and they 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 theorize that that this slight dislocation in where these little pyramids point to uh, were indicative of slight changes in either crustal skid or rotational axis, and that's why they pointed to slightly different points on the eastern horizon. Now, in 2011, which was season six of the Tal al-Hammam excavation project, um, they, they did a sounding, which is basically you go down in a small footprint, but you go down deep to look at stratigraphy. And as they were doing this on the lower tell, they were excavating in an area that we believed was, we, we ended up calling it the sacred precinct. This was not in the temple. However, uh, we believe that this building did serve a cultic purpose of some kind. Perhaps it was a priestly residence of some kind. And one of the one of the things that we know about uh, buildings that are used for cultic purposes is that the when they lay the foundation, they are very very precise about how they lay that foundation according to the cardinal directions. So that once again, uh, you want to make sure that east is east, west is west, north is north, south is south. They're very very careful about orienting it to a specific point on the horizon, just like those pyramids back in Egypt. But whereas the pyramids in Egypt were spread out individually over a large area, here we have the foundational footprint of a building that served a cultic purpose, that when it was destroyed by earthquake, rather than just fix it and rebuild it on the same foundation, if suddenly the cardinal directions and the orientation of that foundation no longer met the, the cultic requirements. They would scrape it clean, not remove it, but they basically bury it, the foundation, take whatever was left of the building away, lay in some new, what we call engineered fill, you know, some new dirt on top, lay an entirely new foundation oriented properly to the new cardinal directions, and then build again. And in this sounding that was done in 2011, I showed up in 2012, and that was the first thing I did when I got to the site was look down into this hole. And I'm looking at foundations that they've gone through stacked up on top of each other with slightly different offsetting relationships in the rotational angle of one foundation on top of the next. And what immediately jumped in my mind was that field of pyramids back in Egypt. So in other words, as they, as they built the new building on top of the old building, the location of the sun on the, uh, the spring equinox had changed location from the previous layer, the previous building. Yes, and so they, they could not reuse the old foundation after the earthquake. They had to lay an entirely new foundation on top of the old. And, and as I measured those angular those rotational angle differences between the succeeding layers, that what I discovered is that they fit the same relative profile of the pyramids back in Egypt. In other words, they were like plus or minus a few degrees of each other. And uh, as, a, as a consequence, to me, this was the first time I had ever, you know, all I'd ever read about was these side-by-side Pyramids. This is the first and only time I'm aware of where they're actually stacked on top of each other, where it becomes very obvious that you have these rotational differences. 
between the two. But I think that the, the phenomenon that caused this change is identical to what caused the change back in Egypt. In other words, slight changes in the, the location of the rotational pole of the Earth, either by a shift in the actual angle of rotation or a skid of the crust, where the, you know, the massive core of the Earth stayed same, but the crust skidded, causing, for the surf, from the surface perspective, a change in that location. Um, and that's, that's what prompted me to write that paper, because it was the first time that I, I'd ever seen it or heard of it being stacked up vertically. And what was very curious is uh, we have a very well-known uh, archaeological architect. His, na his name is Lane Rittenmeyer. He's, he's, he has illustrated just about every, every commentary that's ever been written that has anything to do with archaeology. Very well-known. Brilliant. And I talked to him about that uh, at the end of that season, and he had never heard of that phenomenon. But he said to me, he says, you know, there is a big cathedral that was built. And, you know, cathedral, religious building, always oriented the same way. And he said, there is a five-degree difference between how they laid the foundation for this building and then how they built the building on top of it. And we've never been able to figure out why is there a five-degree difference between the foundation and the building on top of it. And he said, that may explain it. Hmm. You uh, go into some detail in the paper, and sadly, in this format, we don't have time to dig deep into it, but you point out that uh, this may account for the changes in climate uh, attested in uh, the ancient world, and uh, archaeologists have been able to determine this, and climatologists showing that yes. the, uh, the Levant has gone through wet periods and dry periods over history, yes. and as it moves that region into and out of the horse latitudes, uh, yes. that may account for it. But you also cite a... Uh, uh, an event from later in biblical history, the time of King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, where uh, Hezekiah is is ill. And uh, mm -hmm. Isaiah says, you know, ask God for a sign to uh, show that he's he's going to heal you. Uh, and uh, he, he uh, yep. winds up uh, asking for something that might be explained by a change in the rotational axis of Earth. Right. You're talking about Ahaz's famous sundial which was basically an obelisk, and that it cast a shadow across uh, the steps uh, upon which the, the, the raised platform on which the obelisk was installed. And what happened as a result of that is that the, the point the, or the tip of the shadow representing the tip of the obelisk retreated, I forget how many steps, some number of steps up that staircase as a result of it. Now, what that represents, in my mind, is, okay, if the sun's not moving, something moved to cause that shadow to move. And that, to me, is also an example of something happening globally that caused perhaps a crustal skid that caused the point of that shadow to retreat up the stairs in the wrong direction and remain there. So, in, in other words, that obelisk, which were typically about 60 feet tall, pretty tall, um, the shadow moved, and it moved not, not over a course of time like we would expect it to as the Earth ro rotates, but rather it moved quickly, suddenly, in the wrong direction, which is the key point. So something caused the Earth 
to move relative to the sun hmm. or the surface of the earth to move. And, and that to me is, is, an, is another example recorded for us as an eyewitness account. We're not told how it happened. We're not told if there was an earthquake. We're not told anything else that went on by it. But yeah, it's, it's another example of, of what I like to call, in the Old Testament particularly, catastrophic language. Something happened there on the globe that observed by a result, observed by eyewitnesses who didn't understand the science behind it, didn't un- have the vocabulary to describe it, but yet they witnessed the physical effects of it and recorded it for us as an eyewitness account of something. And, and in this case, it's the movement of a shadow of a sundial. And as in the case of um, the destruction of ancient Sodom, Tal el Hamam, God revealing that this was going to happen in advance of the event to his prophets, uh, Abraham and, uh, and Isaiah. Yes. Yeah, see, that, that to me is one of the, one of the things that, that uh, real, to me validates the scripture. Because we, it, it particularly validates miracles. You know, we had two basic kinds of miracles. You know, we have the miracles of Jesus, for example, and those miracles are designed to authenticate his claim to deity. Yes. So he does things that are outside of what we would say, you know, the normal physics. In other words, he can raise people from the dead. He can turn, turn water into wine. He can multiply loaves. He can multiply fishes. Uh, those defy the laws of physics. But then again, who wrote the laws of physics? It wasn't people. <laughs> God wrote them. We've just discovered them. But there's a whole other class of, of miracles that occur. And these I call miracles of outcome, where God tells his prophets ahead of time, hey, something's going to happen. This is exactly how it's going to go down. And doggone if it doesn't. Those are miracles of outcome. He tells ahead of time what's going to happen, how it's going to happen, what the result will be. Miracles mm-hmm. of outcome. Old Testament is filled with those And that was another one that you just referred to. Amen. As we're recording this, the team is already on site in Jordan. They'll be there for a couple of months. Sadly, uh, they will have left just before our Israel tour gets there. So we will not have any opportunity to interact with them there. But we're hoping that they have another international symposium on archaeology and the Bible. Because if they do, we will be right there. For us, that's like candy for our brains. We've been to the last two in Albuquerque and plan to go again. If you've not seen the previous interview with uh, Dr. Philip or Dr. Uh, Stephen Collins, who is the head of the dig there at uh, Tall El Hamam, please go back into the archives at our app. And I encourage you to take advantage of our free app because it not only brings you all of our content, this program, our weekly Bible study, the Gilbert House Fellowship, Unraveling Revelation, and the podcast that started it all, which is back again, PID Radio. That's like uh, close to four hours of content every week, plus archives, which we are adding in as time allows, going back 18 years now. Some of the first interviews we conducted with People like Tom Horn, Dr. Michael Heiser, L.A. Marzulli, and and many others, uh, all in the palm of your hand or in your tablet if you so prefer. The app also is available for Roku and Apple TV if you want to bring the content to your big screen without having to cast it using Apple's AirPlay or Google's Chromecast, which is an option if you've got your mobile device. Um, Then you'll find the links at 
the website, vftb.net, or our main site, which is gilberthouse.org, gilberthouse.org slash app. That will get you all of the, uh, uh, get you the link to the various app stores for your device. And uh, encourage you to go back and dig through those archives because there's some really good stuff going back a long, long time. And uh, so many hours in the day, uh, and I have not been able to go through and categorize everything as well as I would like. So sometimes you just have to dig and find those gold nuggets. Anyway, um, encourage you to support the work at Tall El Hamam. The website is digsodom.com. One word, dig, D-I-G, Sodom, S-O-D-O-M, digsodom.com. They've got years of academic papers to come from what they've been able to excavate over these 16 seasons at the site. And uh, really, really looking forward to uh, seeing how this all shakes out. But um, the evidence convinces me, the scientific evidence, the location makes sense, the science makes sense. And uh, just more proof that archaeology is cool and uh, that once we set aside some of our preconceptions about uh, how old the Earth is, perhaps certainly uh, our timelines, because mine doesn't quite fit the evidence of uh, Sodom either. I would have put Abraham probably a little earlier in history, but, you know, I'm not an expert. And uh, anyway, there there may be more revelations to come as the uh, evidence is uh, analyzed and subjected to peer review scrutiny. Well, uh, a few things to let you know about. Of course, you can always follow us at VFTB.net, our, our uh, YouTube channel. And uh, God bless you if you're using YouTube, but be advised that at some point we might say something or they might go back into our archives and find something that uh, gets us banned, which is, again, why we say, please, please get our free app. But YouTube.com slash Gilbert House, subscribe, click the little bell for notifications, or you can uh, check us out, Twitter, at View from Bunker, my personal Twitter account, where is where I, most of the time when I'm on social media, at Derek Gilbert, Facebook, View from the Bunker, and of course, all the new social media sites, Truth Social, Gab Me We Get Our Parlor, at Derek P. Gilbert. Uh, the last four weeks... I've been going through a series with Dr. Sherry Tenpenny based on my book, The Second Coming of Saturn. If you haven't seen those, her happy hour program on Thursdays, those will be archived at her website. And over the course of the four hours, I essentially went through the entire book. So went into a lot of uh, the evidence. Uh, It's as deep a dive as you can get in a visual verbal format as opposed to the written word. I mean, 550 footnotes in the book. You can't really get that deep when you're discussing it with somebody face-to-face. But uh, if you want to get a uh, sort of a summary of what the second coming of Saturn is all about, why I connect Saturn of the Romans to, uh, at the beginning of history, Shemiyaza of the Book of First Enoch, and at the end of history, Apollyon or Abaddon, the destroyer of Revelation 9, we kind of go through the process and then uh, spell out some of the uh, implications for these connections. How does this entity still influence the world today? Uh, that's at Dr. Sherry Tenpenny's website. I'll put that in the show notes below this uh, below this program, so you can check that out if you are so inclined. There is a virtual conference coming from here, The Watchman. Details on that forthcoming. I've got a presentation that I've already turned in for that. Another one coming soon from Skywatch TV. Details on that forthcoming. And uh, we will be in, um, well, Israel in March, March 19th through 30th. So um, trying to work ahead and get some things put in the can so that we do not have any program interruptions while we're uh, 
while we're away. We will also uh, be in Turkey, God willing, this fall. We're trying to work out details for a tour, including a couple of archaeologist friends of ours, Dr. Aaron Jedkins and Dr. Judd Burton. But details on that still pending confirmation with the uh, the travel company. Some final thoughts uh, this week. I'm recording this a little early, ahead of schedule this week, uh, January 24th, Tuesday night. If you followed this podcast for any length of time, you know the debt of gratitude that we owe Dr. Michael Heiser. He's um, been a repeat guest on this show. He's one of the first interviews that we conducted back on PID Radio, probably 2006. And we followed Mike's work and stayed in touch with him through all these years because his work has been foundational to what we do. Really, everything that we do, the books that Sharon and I have written, start with the Divine Council concept that we learned from Mike Heiser, from his books like The Unseen Realm, Reversing Hermon, his uh, commentaries on the books of Enoch, now proving to be very helpful to us, his books on angels and demons, helping to bring scholarly research into these topics that academics have been sharing with one another for, for generations, finally making them as accessible to us in the pews. And we deeply appreciate Mike's work and his friendship over the years. Now, if you've been following this podcast for any length of time, you probably also know that um, Mike has been battling pancreatic cancer for the last 18 months or so. And um, this past weekend on Facebook, he published an open letter letting letting us know that in a nutshell, doctors have run out of options. And he is at home now and in hospice care. He has continued to work until the point where his strength no longer allowed it. Um, we don't know how much more time Mike has with us. If you have been blessed by his work at all, a short word or note to him through Facebook I'm sure would be a blessing to him and to his family. Uh, we pray for them, for Drina and, and th- their kids, that, um, I mean, what, what can you say at a time like this? We are um, saddened already, but we know that Mike knows his is letter that he he published is is beautifully written and it is beautiful he is looking forward to joining that council that he has been writing about and teaching about for so many years and we look forward to um, joining him there one day and I pray that well when, when the time comes that I display the grace and the faith that Mike has displayed over these, uh, these last 18 months. So again, your prayers for, for Mike and his family, greatly appreciated at this time. And until next time, a reminder that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. I'm Derek Gilbert. This is A View from the Bunker.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.